Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation, uh, where we started our uh, massive literature review to uncover every possible treatment for anxiety and depression and related disorders. Uh, To find out more about the effort, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. Uh, we need your help to get this going. So uh, today, my guest is Dr. Eric Maisel. Uh, he's the author of more than 50 books. His interests include uh, creativity, uh, creative life, the profession of creativity, coaching, which he has founded, issues surrounding your life's purpose and meaning, mental health, and uh, critical psychology, which I don't know what that is, but I guess it's also called critical psychiatry or antipsychiatry. So we'll get into that. So Eric, thanks for coming. Hi, Richard. Great to be with you. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and uh, what are some of the things you've worked on over the years? My background is varied, uh, as is the background of many people. I have undergraduate degrees in philosophy and psychology. I have a pair of masters, one in creative writing and one in counseling, and I have a PhD in counseling psychology. And I'm retired, but I was a licensed California marriage and family therapist I worked exclusively with creative and performing artists for a long time, and then I segued to coaching, moved out of the therapy model into the coaching world, and I've been coaching creative and performing artists for the last uh, thirty plus years. Oh, what kinds of uh, coaching? You, you said the performing artists, so these are what yeah, singers, well, songwriters, and what, what well, creative and performing artists. That's kind of the phrase, the catch-all phrase for writers, painters, musicians. Anybody in one of the uh, creative disciplines. So I've been coaching them for a long time now on the emotional issues, on the practical issues, on the work-related issues, how to how to deal with blockage and procrastination and resistance, and also marketplace issues, how to make how to make a go of it in the marketplace as a creative person. 
All right. So what are, I mean, what are some of the tenets or things that people struggle with in, uh, in creative professions? Well, the first is getting the work done. That's number one. Um, I have a recent book out called The Power of Daily Practice. And the point of that book is to remind creatives that if you miss a couple of days of your creative work, what happens is that weeks, months, and years seem to disappear. It's easy for that to fall off your plate. So that's the number one issue is actually getting the work done. Uh, the second issue would be the, the creative anxiety, the anxiety that arises as a natural feature of the creative process. And that anxiety arises for lots of reasons. But the main one is that the creative process is actually making one choice after another and choosing provokes anxiety. So anxiety naturally threads its way through the creative process. A lot of creatives don't realize that, that they have to deal with anxiety as a lifelong issue. And then there are all kinds of other issues, including marketplace issues, not feeling like you're good at selling your work, not wanting to sell your work, not feeling hmm. equal to the marketplace. I don't know. Is this different for someone that's new to the creative process versus someone that's been doing it for years? Like, by definition, if someone's been doing X for five or 10 years, are they over it? No. Or is this a thing you never get over? Absolutely not. Especially issues like anxiety depression or sadness, whatever you want to call it, addictions. In fact, the, the first year after an artist's great success is the year he or she is most prone to fall prey to an addiction. So you don't, you don't get over it. A simple example is Tolstoy, who wrote two great novels, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, stopped dead in his tracks and didn't write another novel for 40 years. He was overcome by a kind of existential depression around how can I follow up those two novels with another novel? So every creative person typically has issues that last uh, until the end of time. I see what you mean. And yeah, if um, if these people, I mean, sure, I'm sure most of them maybe got help from friends and family, but if they didn't get some help to get them over the hump, then a lot of uh, wonderful works of literature and art and everything else would, would never see the light of day. Yeah, and they don't typically get help from friends and family because friends and family are typically unsupportive of the creative's journey because typically the creative is not making money and uh, that's a black mark. So the creative's mate would like him or her to do something different and uh, bring money into the family income, et cetera. So I would say that as a rule, creatives don't feel supported by the people around them, including the people who love them. So how do people overcome then? Do they kind of, uh, I don't know, do, do their minds get warped? in the effort to, to deal they, with this they, consistent stress? Yeah, they, so like, what do they do? They typically don't overcome it. I mean, this is not a, a smiley-faced uh, enterprise working with creatives. Um, an awful lot, I would say, you know, in, in the high 90% of creative folks end up being disappointed creatives, disappointed in their output, disappointed in the efforts they've made, etc. So it, it takes someone who views himself or herself as the exception to make it. And uh, the rule is that if you're in the arts, you won't make it, and you'll, you will only make it if you prove to be the exception, if you do more than the next person, if you are a little bit cleverer than the next person, etc. Well, again, without your help, because I know you couldn't have helped everybody, what do, what do you see historically? Like, what are the heuristics that successful people use to overcome this doubt? It isn't that they've overcome it. They they do their work despite it. Um, it's that they're driven to do their work. I think that that's the, the major difference 
between somebody who gets their work done and somebody who doesn't is that the person who gets their work done has is driven for whatever reasons to get the work done, whereas someone who doesn't get it done is merely interested in his or her own ideas. And there's a huge difference between being merely interested and really driven to get the work done. And also there's some underpinning of deep love and enthusiasm and devotion on the part of someone who gets their work done. Pavarotti has a quote I like, which is, people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline. It's devotion, and there's a big difference. And there is a big difference. A lot of creatives think they're not disciplined enough, but actually they're not devoted enough to what they're doing. Yeah, well, I love Pavarotti. So I guess whatever whatever he figured out to do worked. Interesting. You have a background, I guess, in creativity, and I don't know if you've conducted like thousands of brainstorming sessions or, you know, what does creativity look like in your life? What kinds of things have you done that you felt good about? But mostly it's uh, writing books. I've been, I grew up as a book loving person and I've done 50 or 60 books. So that's how my creativity expresses itself. I actually had a little visual art period in my life, but basically I'm a word person and that's how, that's how I express my creativity. So, you know, it's a lot of books. What are what are some of the books that you've written? Like, what are the themes? Or what are they about? Well, a lot of them are about the creative life, about creativity and depression. That's the Van Gogh Blues, about creativity and addiction. That's a book called Creative Recovery, about creativity and anxiety. There's a book called Mastering Creative Anxiety. So a lot of the books are for creative people. Then I'm also interested in issues of life purpose and meaning. So I've done a book called Life Purpose Bootcamp and other books related to making a paradigm shift from the idea of singular life purpose to the idea of life purposes, which I think is a better idea, and a shift from the idea of seeking meaning to the idea of making meaning. So I have lots of different ideas around life purpose and meaning. And then mental health issues. I've done lots of books, books with titles like The Future of Mental Health and Rethinking Depression and Humane Helping. I'm interested in enacting a paradigm shift from the current diagnosing and treating mental disorder paradigm to something new that we haven't seen yet that is more a more humane helping paradigm. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So how does creativity uh, interact with anxiety versus depression versus other, you know, mental issues? Like who tends to get anxious and what's the creative process like if you're laboring under that versus depression? I don't know if it's versus. I think both are coming in a creative person's life. They're going to have to deal with the case of the blues because, because that will be existential depression. Namely, it's often hard for creatives to continue feeling that their work matters. And if you don't feel like your work matters, then the reasons for doing them have evaporated. And then you fall into that existential funk of not having reasons for living or reasons for doing your work. 
So most creatives are going to have that experience of feeling at some point that their work doesn't matter. And they're going to be plagued by what I call the Van Gogh blues, by that ex- by the existential blues. And then virtually every creative person is going to experience creative anxiety because of, as I said before, the creative process being choosing one choice after another and choosing provoking anxiety. Also, the specter of criticism, rejection, all of those things that are coming in a creative person's life that nobody really wants uh, performance, our performance anxiety, as you know, is the number is the world's number one phobia. So it it is so strong in us to be made anxious by the idea of showing ourselves in public that it's no wonder that creative people are anxious. And the blank canvas and the blank computer screen are also like performances, and creative people experience that as performance anxiety, sitting there in front of a blank canvas or a blank computer screen. So there are lots of sources of anxiety in a creative person's life and lots of sources of depression in a creative person's life and lots of sources of addiction in a creative person's life, primarily because I think creative people come into the world with bigger appetites, more chi, more energy. And that's wonderful if you make use of it, but it's not wonderful if you need, you know, a thousand more peanuts or a thousand more um, drugs or a thousand more whatever. So if you can manage that appetite, that's wonderful. But if you can't manage that appetite, then you're under threat of an addiction. Yeah, it's funny. I guess for me, podcasts can be like that. Like I've done just about 3,000 of them in under five years. And I remember a friend of mine saying to me, he's like, you know, I I felt bad. I wasn't doing enough of them. He's like, why don't you just do them 24-7? He goes, is that enough? And I, I laughed. and I'm like, yeah, you're right. Even that's no, that, not enough. That's right. That's right. <laughs> for some, For somebody with that kind of appetite, nothing's enough. And that is a that is a problem for creative people that often the second they finish something, they already feel the drive. Picasso could not pass a blank canvas, even somebody else's blank canvas, without needing to fill it up. So that I did a book called Brainstorm, which is about productive obsessions. So in my mind, there are both unproductive obsessions, namely washing your hand of, hands a thousand times a day, and then productive obsessions, namely really being curious about things and wanting to do the next podcast or paint the next painting or write the next sonnet. And those productive obsessions are fine as long as they're kept within bounds, as long as they don't turn into unproductive manias and you you go off the rails. So there are lines to be walked where you nurture your appetites, but you also have to be careful that you don't go too far. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So what does your coaching look like? I know it's different for every person. You know, what are some of like the tenets of it? Well, the basic tenets are coach-oriented tenets. Namely, we set goals. So a client has to be able to, often with my help, but has to be able to articulate what he or she wants to work on in the in the near future over the course of the next weeks or month. Get usually two or three of those goals named. Then we look at the challenges, what's going to get in the way, whether that's family obligations or day jobs or anxiety or depression or whatever it is that might be getting in the way. Then we have to concoct strategies for dealing with those obstacles. And then we monitor the goals. The person then goes away. We don't do a lot of talking. It's not historical. It's not like therapy. We don't talk about the past. It's about what do you want to get done this week? Then you go out and you try it. And if you don't get it done, then we talk about what didn't work and and what what to try the next week. So it's very future-oriented and goal-oriented. 
have you spoken to other coaches that don't coach creatives or just coach, you know, people, let's say that have anxiety or depression. Do you compare what you do to other coaches or, you know, you know, your space and you just innovate yeah, within your space. I think that's right. I know my space. I run support groups for creativity coaches. I train creativity coaches. That's the space I'm in. I don't know really what a business coach might do or a spiritual coach might do or some other coach might do. It's my hunch that that they're all goal-oriented, that that's kind of a basic tenet of coaching, is that the coach and the client have to co-create some goals so that they know what they're working on. But beyond that, I wouldn't know how the, how the different kinds of coaching play themselves out. you have any interesting stories that jump out at you? You know, people you've coached without obviously identifying names, but you know, any interesting results you've been able to get for people or really positive ones? Well, one that pops out is uh, a woman who did a lot of creative things, like she was a performance artist and had an interesting performance artist career and had never written anything, but wanted to start on her first novel and attended a writing workshop of mine. And then we worked together and she went through the whole process of not believing in her ideas, not understanding that the main thing was to show up and not attach to outcomes, the whole gamut of process that everybody has to go through. And the upshot of that was that she ended up with a two-book deal and became a very well-known writer. So that's by way of saying that someone can start at ground zero. And if you stick to the process, which means being willing to make mistakes and messes, showing up every day, not attaching to outcomes, not blaming yourself on a bad day, etc. There are probably 50 things to be said there about how attending to process works. But if you do attend to process, you can move from never having much done anything in a particular genre to doing very well in that genre. So what, again, what is the, uh, the creative process? What, what's a healthy way for the creative process to occur versus an unhealthy way in your observation? Well, I'm not sure if there's an unhealthy creative process. I think not honoring the creative process is the problem. If you come to the work with some hope for a guarantee that the work is going to be excellent, that's a recipe for failure. If you look at any creative person, I don't know, Bob Dylan, how many of his thousands of songs are wonderful, 30 or 40 or 50? How many of Beethoven's symphonies are wonderful, maybe half, etc. You could look at any creative person and you'll see that only a percentage of their output works. Only a percentage of their output is really good. That takes a certain maturity to understand that, that you're going to be starting something without a guarantee and it may well not prove excellent. People who need that guarantee are not, are, to, to use loose language, we typically call them perfectionists, but I would say it's not perfectionism, but rather just this desire for some guarantee that the thing is going to work before they actually work on it. We have to get the work done. Then we look at the thing. We have to have our eyes open and honestly appraise it, make it better, etc. That's honoring the process. Whereas sitting there dreaming about winning the Nobel Prize and needing some guarantee that this book that you're not writing is going to be good. That's kind of dishonoring the process. So what does it look like um, people that are one hit wonders, you know, or people that stop the creativity they stop their process, they, they let it go, they give up on it versus ones that don't? Well, probably every one of those people has a different story. Sometimes you get lucky and your best idea is your first idea that can happen. And then you struggle to figure out how to deal with that best idea, not your second best idea, not arriving. If it was a big success, then as I said earlier, you might be dealing with suddenly a whole social environment that you never knew was coming 
with sex offered to you and, and drugs offered to you and a whole world offered to you because now you're a celebrity. And that's certainly going to derail you and make it difficult for you to get on with your next work. So I, I would imagine that there's every sort of story. Also, there is the odd truth that what you're supposed to do next is both repeat yourself because that's what people want and also top yourself, do better. And that's actually a very odd a requirement that you both do the same thing and top yourself. And also you may not want to do, you may not want to repeat that thing. To take one classic example, Arthur Conan Doyle was so upset that Sherlock Holmes was so popular and that his other novels were, weren't being read that he, of course, did that thing we know he did. He killed Sherlock Holmes off. And his fans were so upset that they pestered him so much that he had to bring Sherlock Holmes back from the dead. So you can have that kind of problem where the thing that you're so well known for isn't interesting to you, but you've got to keep doing it. It's like you have to sing your your same seven cover songs till the end of time, because that's what people are coming to the cafe for or coming to the nightclub for. So there are lots of reasons why it's hard to follow up a success with the next success. Yeah, that's interesting. What are, what are various artists, that, you know, if you have the inside track, like what are their perceptions of the thing they're famous for that they're just sick to death of? They're sick to death of it, <laughs> but they also know it's their meal ticket. And, and at that point in their lives, they, off, they also have a lot of responsibilities. They may have a whole staff, all kinds of people, their, their agents and their managers and their roadies and their thises and their thats who need them to keep being successful. So they feel that pressure of repeating their successes, even if they would like to do a whole new thing. It's very rare for, for something to happen like Bob Dylan going electric somebody throwing over what they're known for and doing something that they know is going to get them booed and does get you booed. It's actually rare for an artist to make that stark transition from the thing they don't want to do anymore to something new they want to try. Most creative folks will stay, will repeat themselves and do that thing till the end of time, primarily because, well, they want the income to come in, but they have all kinds of responsibilities and duties around that work. Yeah, it sounds like a very conflicted existence. Is that uh, what is that why anxiety and depression seem to ride along with creative people? And the addictions. It is a very conflicted profession. And you can imagine singing the same song for the 10,000th time. And maybe, I think most people can't imagine that. They, they, for them, the artist is singing it fresh that night for them. But for the artist, that's not how the artist is experiencing it. Some artists seem to feel like they are expressing, experiencing it anew each time. To my eye, Bruce Springsteen in, in his heyday, he seemed to be delivering that concert from his heart each night. But that's not true for a lot of artists. They're, they're delivering, they're, they're mailing it in rather than really performing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never really thought about these people nearly as deeply as you have, but uh, it is, it's very, very interesting what they, they go through, what their lives are like. Do they experience anxiety and depression differently than, than other types of people? Well, of course, that isn't really my clientele, but I would say that they don't experience anxiety and depression around their creative life because even if they could be creative, they've walled that off. They've made some decision that they're not creative and that's their internal talking point. I'm not a creative person. So they've blocked that off. And even if they could be creative, they've decided not to go down that route, maybe because they have some intuition that they don't want to do that hard work, that they may have a better intuition in some ways of what it takes to write a novel than a novelist does. And so they don't want to go down that route and make all of that work for themselves. So I'm sure they have all the, the typical anxieties and 
the typical depressions, for me, um, I try to help people understand that a root cause of anxiety and depression for everyone is this mistaken idea that there is some purpose to life that they're supposed to figure out, as opposed to making the shift to deciding that they have to identify and then live their life purposes in the plural. And once people get to that, that idea that they have to actually create a menu of life purposes, then some of that anxiety and depression immediately goes away because they, under, they, they understand how they can work on their life. They don't have to go to the top of some mountain or sit at some guru's feet, but they have to decide for themselves what's important to them, what their life purposes are going to amount to. And then in a regular way, in a daily practice way or in a weekly way, actually attend to those life purposes. If a person can do that, that ends up being a more powerful and a more passionate and a more meaningful life. So you're saying that um, it's a danger to have a very narrow existence as a creative person, you know, like only work on the stuff you're good at. Is that what you're saying or what do you mean? That's that's part of what I'm saying. I think I think it is um, a trap. Um, let me say a couple of consecutive sentences here. One of the ways that we reduce our experience of anxiety is to do something we know. The unknown is more anxiety producing than what we know. So if we've learned how to do something, make a certain kind of painting, let's say we are great at painting artichokes, but the idea of painting potatoes makes us a little anxious because we don't know how to do that, then we're going to keep painting artichokes. But that's going to stunt our growth because then we won't have the opportunity to paint uh, you know, turnips and potatoes and every other kind of vegetable. So artists do have to be careful about repeating themselves, and they have to check in to make sure that they're not repeating themselves just to reduce their experience of anxiety. To say that another way around, they have to keep taking risks or else they won't grow. But what about their daily activities? I mean, how much of it should be their creative outlay? You know, is eight hours a day too much or not? Oh, it's not, that's Four way, days that's a week actually, or seven? That, that's way too much, really. If you attend, if you actually get to your creative life for an hour or two a day, that's tremendous because you have other life purposes, too. In my model, there are other things that are important to you, too. Relationships, your, your other careers, activism, service. We, we could name all kinds of things that are also important. It's a mistake. And a lot of creative people fall into this category of making this mistake. It's a mistake to think that only your creativity matters. That, that's a way to, to actually live a very cold and lonely life. If you think that creating matters and relating doesn't, well, then you're going to be the Van Goghs of the world. You're going to be somebody who has a tremendous output over a short period of time, but still ends up committing suicide because you don't have any love in your life. So we need to live a balanced life as creatives. And it's not about getting in 12 hours of creating and then collapsing. That That's not the right life. The right life is getting in some amount of in a very regular way, getting to your creative life every day, but then also having the rest of your life work. So so successful creative people actually are only, what, an hour or two a day, that's it, that's enough? If they got to that, you would be surprised how happy most creative people would be with that kind of output. They would be thrilled to actually get to their work for an hour or two. Obviously, there are creative people who work lots more than that, four, five, six hours, but for most creative people to actually get to their work for a couple of hours each day would be a mile ahead of where they are now currently. I'm sure everyone expects them to be experts in everything too. Like, I don't know, Matthew McConaughey is playing like pickup basketball. You know, he probably doesn't have any skill in it, but what do you think it would be like for him with the people he plays basketball with, for instance? Like, 
would they expect that he'd be good at everything because he's good at you know acting, for instance? I do think that's I do think that's an interesting question. I, I don't have a real answer to that, but I do think that there is probably I'm not sure if you'd call it a halo effect or, or some sense in which somebody was good at something. I mean, why why would a why would a great tennis player be a, why the right spokesperson about some product? Why would he be the expert about that product? We know it's just his celebrity status that got him the gig to promote that product, and yet somehow we're supposed to believe that he that he's expert at all of these different things that he's promoting. So I do think that it makes sense what you're saying, that probably there is some effect where we believe that, I don't know, Tom Brady knows something other than football or somebody knows something about other than what their, what their real expertise is. Yeah. Like I have, you know, a friend that does networking and computers and I just feel like he knows everything about computers. And he always reminds me, I only know this one part of computers. So I think that's what happens. Like doctors, for instance, people think that they know everything about health. Well, and and people, of, they know everything about stuff. You know? Well, and we can tell by looking at a lot of doctors that they don't care, take care of themselves. So we know that they may not actually have self-wisdom. They may know a lot of stuff about medicine, but that's not the same as knowing enough about life to take care of themselves. Well, so what have you learned about the nature of anxiety and depression through your work with creative people? I think the headline, if I just were to say it simply, is that they are natural and expected consequences of living a certain life and not mental disorders. And that to imagine that there's some pill that's going to work to take away the anxiety of a creative person or the existential despair of a creative person is a mistake. To to imagine that a pill can do that is a mistake. Chemicals have effects, and so that pill may have a certain kind of effect, may tranquilize the person or do something to that person but it's not an adequate or a real treatment for something that isn't a mental disorder. That anxiety and depression come with the territory, doesn't make them mental disorders, makes them lifelong challenges, but not diseases. So what's some of the hardest work that people under your coaching have to do? If I have to say a couple of things in shorthand, it would be believing in themselves, thinking thoughts that serve them. It's very hard for most people to actually think thoughts that serve them. Most people are thinking self-pestering thoughts all the time and showing up. I would say those are the three main things, believing in themselves, thinking thoughts that serve them, and actually showing up to the work. And um, I don't know how long of um, how many coaching sessions or how long does it take on average for people really to get traction and to feel better and work better? One session can help a lot because a lot of these things have been known to the creative person all along. I just get to reflect them back or articulate them in a first session and they go, yeah, sure. I knew I was supposed to show up every day. I don't know what I was thinking, thinking I could write a novel by showing up once every 16 months. That's not, in other words, they quickly get some of these core ideas that they ought to be thinking thoughts that serve them, that they ought to be getting to their work every day, etc. So even one session can make a huge difference. Any, um, I don't know, comments that have jumped out at you that surprised you or, you know, you just nodded your head internally like, yeah, I'm getting through to this person. Like, you know, again, are there things that seem to be commonplace that you experience as the coach that tells you that the person's on the right track? I absolutely can tell if a person's on the right track, but I'm not sure I could describe how I know that. There's a difference between talking vaguely about the novel you'd like to write or still making a choice between two or three novel ideas and talking in an animated fashion about a particular problem in chapter three that the uh, creative person really wants to get solved. 
that movement from a kind of vague detachment and a kind of fantasy connection to the work to actually being inside the work is one of the proofs that that a creative person's on track. Have you ever coached someone that you loved what they do creatively and like you were a little bit starstruck by them, but you had to go and shake it off and still help them? Well, I don't look at the work. That's one of the, I try not to look at the work. I'm like any human being. If you know, if, if you give me the URL to your website, I'm probably going to look at your paintings, but I try not to look at the work because it's not about the work. I, if, if I love a particular kind of music and you're doing another kind of music, I don't want that to affect how, I don't want me to try to change you to make the music I want you to make. So I tend not to um, look at the work, but uh, sometimes I do, and there there are artists I love among my clients, and yeah, and I and I've worked with world famous artists whose work I love. So yeah, um, I, I have worked with artists whose work I love, but that doesn't turn my head. They have the same issues, the same problems, the same challenges. So we're still in there in the nitty gritty. I'm not starstruck by them. Um, we just have to get down to the work. Okay. Well, well, very good. Oh, well, actually, one more question. Do you do you see a lot of creative people say like, oh, I'm more creative when I'm drunk or I'm high or I'm doing this or that or I'm on mushrooms? And, you know, if they say that to they, you, they like, do you they, encourage they, or discourage that? Yeah, they historically say that, but they don't say it to me. They historically say that. And that's been a common theme or cop out. But my response is, if you if you, if you say that to my face, I will say, let's 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 take a real look at that. And my energy will be to have the person enter recovery at some point because I don't buy that picture. Okay. Well, it's good to know. So um, resources for listeners. It's, it's been a really fascinating call. I think it's really cool what you do. You've written you know, 50 plus books. Where do people start so they don't get overwhelmed? Like where should they go to find out more about you? And if they if, want coaching, yeah, where should they if, go? If creativity is on their mind, then I, I would recommend my book, Coaching the Artist Within. If mental fitness and mental health is what's on their mind, then I would recommend a book that's coming out in a couple of weeks called Redesign Your Mind. But you can find out lots more about me at my website, ericmazel.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Well, very good, Eric. It's been a really cool call. I'm, I'm not starstruck by you, but I'm, I have a new respect for you, and I appreciate all the work that you do. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.